0: Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Leslie Vinjamori, Director of the US and the Americas Program. I'll be sitting in for Bromwin, who spent the week in Davos at the World Economic Forum. This week on the show, we'll be looking at the attacks on government institutions in Brazil on January 8th of this year, and two years ago in the United States, and the role that disinformation plays. In Brazil, the recent storming of government institutions by supporters of former President Bolsonaro evoked memories of January 6th, at least for some. We'll be discussing what all this means for Brazil and look at how conspiracy theories percolate online. Why do they sometimes lead to political violence? And What role does social media play in all of this? We'll also be looking at the United States, the state of American politics as we go into 2023, How are things shaping up for President Biden after the midterms, now that a new Congress has been sworn in? And what are the challenges being faced more broadly by the American body politic? We will be discussing the legacy of January 6th, two years on from the insurrection at the Capitol and after the conclusion of the hearings, and what this means for America's place in the world. So, joining me today in the studio to help break down these topics, we have a returning voice, Dr. Christopher Sabatini, Senior Research Fellow for Latin America. Hello, Chris.
1: Thank you, Leslie.
0: And joining Chris are two new voices on the podcast. Sarusha Govender is an award-winning science journalist and the Mo Ibrahim Foundation Academy Fellow here at Chatham House. Welcome, Sarusha. Hello, Leslie. Good to be here. And Alex Krasadomsky... A senior research associate with our Digital Society Initiative is also joining us. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hey, Dose. So let's start first with Brazil and the role of disinformation in that democracy. This is all the more pertinent given recent events in the Brazilian capital that saw supporters of Bolsonaro storm government buildings. Chris, take us to the beginning with the storming of the government buildings. What happened on January 8th?
1: I'm going to go a little bit even earlier because basically Bolsonaro lost by a whisker, the second round elections in October, to Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, the leftist former president who had served a brief amount of time in jail for corruption charges. Bolsonaro had been saying before the election that if he lost, it could only be through fraud and had been Stoking all these false claims about the unreliability, untrustworthiness of the Brazil's electronic system, so when he lost, as predicted, he didn't really, he never conceded. And in fact, like a sore loser, he actually just left the country and went to Florida and refused to hand over the presidential sash to Lula on January first, when he was inaugurated. And his protests, his supporters camped out in front of military barracks right after the election for a long time across the country and demanded that the military intervene and overturn the elections. Bolsonaro didn't openly support them. He supported the right to protest. But that their presence there, they slowly began to ferment this social media network that raised money and, in fact, organized logistically the number of Bolsonaro supporters to come to Brasilia, and to storm on January 6th, 8th rather, I get the two dates confused because there are similarities both in timing and uh, tactics. On January 8th, the storming of the Supreme Court, the Congress and the presidential palace. And they had even created, they were offering food and through social media, they were saying, just come, we'll, we'll, We'd have a barbecue. They offered bus services to bring them to the Capitol. It was they telegraphed this for a long time, and it happened. Now, what's happened since, and I'll pr- quickly on, get on this, is now obviously it failed. The military didn't intervene, but it looks like there may have been some complicity among the state police forces. In the Distrito Federal, which is where Brasilia is, that sort of allowed this to go on. And so since the, uh, the governor, who is an ally of Bolsonaro, has been suspended for 90 days, and the security chief, who actually coincidentally happened to be in Florida also, was, has been fired. So we're now getting to see how there can be accountability, but the Bolsonaro faction, factors are not backing down.
0: It's interesting to listen to you tell the story because it sounds like a gradual accumulation. But of course, for many of us watching it, we were surprised. There seemed to be silence coming from Bolsonaro. It seemed like from the outside, maybe it wasn't. And you can say more about this, but it, I think for many of us, we were surprised that there there wasn't more a protest. that he seemed to just go missing for a period of time.
1: You're right, though, because I think many people thought the protest would erupt and become violent immediately after the elections or on Inauguration Day, January 1st, and it didn't happen. So I think we collectively, breathed a sigh of relief, thinking, oh, great, maybe this was all smoke and no fire. But in fact, they were stoking the fire. It just took a week later for that to happen. And fortunately... No one. It was a Sunday. So no one was in the Congress building. No one was in the Supreme Court building. The president was actually in Sao Paulo. So no one was really directly affected or threatened by it. But they just trashed all three government institutions and openly called for the military to intervene to overthrow the president. So effectively calling for a coup, which is different than what happened, obviously, in January 6th in the Congress, where they're trying to interrupt a vote. Important distinction, and we're
0: going to come back to that as well. But let me ask you a question. I, people read this in different ways. But what do you, from your point of view, what was it? How, what does it say about democracy? Does it tell us that the system worked, or is it a sign of the weakness of democracy in Brazil? Are you, what,
1: you know, if you could speak to the broader impact? It's a good question. I think in the short term, institutions survived. The military didn't intervene. In fact, showed no interest in doing it. Immediately afterwards, the military and the police forces did take apart the camps and send the demonstrators back, as they were in all over Brazil, without violence. There was no repression that accompanied this. Um, it was relatively peacefully returned to normal. And immediately afterwards, Lula returned to Brasilia, and there were... Uh, a number of marches and statements across the board by uh, Democratic leaders, including those from Bolsonaro's party, including the Supreme Court, denouncing the effectively the coup attempt and the insurrection. I think the question, though, is going to be over the long first. Is and Alex and I have written about this in an expert comment on Chatham House. Is you know what to do about the regulation mm-hmm. of social media that allowed this to happen? Because right now, what you have, and this is very dangerous. Well, we. Lula has to ensure there's accountability for these anti-democratic acts from the protesters as well as from the social media companies that allowed this to happen. It can't be vested with one government and one person. And right now, it's mostly a Supreme Court justice, Alexander de Moraes, who is leading that. And that's troubling because it does inflame the suspicions of the Bolsonaro, The Bolsonaro is stoked now for years, of a deep state threat against or politicization of a state that's against him. So the next step is going to be very difficult in how this is prosecuted and what is done to set in place that there's not if you will an increase in political polarization.
0: This concept of the deep state is very interesting, yes. right? Because again, there's resonance across the US and Brazil and elsewhere, and I think you're right to to draw that 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 problem of a new government looking back at the crimes of a former government, very complicated, and whether designed to be or not, inevitably very political. The other question I guess I have for you is success tends to breed success. It doesn't look like this was successful. So what does it mean for Bolsonaro's supporters? Do they peel away? Are they emboldened? Which direction does this head now?
1: Early polls that were conducted right after the insurrection demonstrate they were not supported by a majority of the public. But yeah, again, I don't want to be a pessimist because I think, again, democratic institutions and democratic sentiment triumphed on January 8th. But uh, Lula is going to face a very difficult economic and political situation. Bolsonaro has a majority block of seats in the Senate and the chamber. It's, the country is facing inflation, stagnating economic growth, a number of problems that he has to address. And basically, the, Bolsonaro has implied, and certainly his followers have demonstrated, they're not going to go, this has been in the works for a long time. And the, the plan originally was, and this is what they did, was try to stage a rebellion in a state that had sympathies, where the governor had sympathies to the present former president Bolsonaro, and hoping that this would create a sort of state of emergency, the military would have to intervene. That's what they did they didn't overthrow democracy. But I think we're going to see more protests like this, maybe not in the short term, but as things become more difficult in Brazil, as sort of economic dislocation increases and distrust increases, and Brazil has very low levels of popular trust in institutions and political class. I would suspect this will be, I want to say, a common phenomenon, but it will not be... Ignore it at
0: their peril, it sounds like. So, Alex, let me turn to you and zero in on this question that you are so focused on and so knowledgeable about, which is the role of social media. What role did social media Play in instigating the insurrection in Brazil.
2: I th- I think the relationship between technology and democracy has been really a pivotal one for the last 10-15 sort of years, and now we're starting to see what maybe ten or fifteen years ago we would have thought of as this kind of populist playbook for how to use social media. Because if you, I think it it might be worth thinking through the timeline of, of how our relationship might have changed with social media over the last sort of 15-20 years. If you think back to the Arab Spring and the site of smartphones in Tahrir Square, there were many people who looked to Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms as almost the vanguard of democracy, sweeping the world that you couldn't stop. You couldn't stop Facebook. Now, look how far that narrative has changed now, and I think one of the things that that comes through very strongly is that this experiment of outsourcing our politics, outsourcing our public commons, outsourcing a huge amount of the way in which people get their news and form their political opinions to these giant platforms has had really major consequences for democracy. Now. In the case of brazil and in, to some extent in the case of the us as well we have to be think about it in a slightly more subtle way in which we need to draw a distinction between the really big platforms and the much smaller platforms so everybody's familiar with facebook with twitter with youtube with instagram these are an increasingly tiktok these are huge platforms and they are a really powerful source of building of broadcast So off the back of them, you can create large networks of political sympathy. And not only that, you can begin to fundraise through them. You can target advertising through them. And if you're a government, you can get them around a boardroom table and shout at them. That's one sort of group. The second group, and these, and the group of platforms that were instrumental in what we saw in the U.S. in Brazil, is, there are no boardroom tables there. So these are platforms like Telegram, Gab in the U.S., Parler. There are a profusion of what is known as alt tech, and these have sprung up in the, over the last five or six years as major platforms under government and public pressure booted these slightly more extreme voices off their platforms, um, in response. They started their own. And the story was this was all a bit funny because these platforms weren't very good. They found it very difficult to find hosting. They didn't work anywhere near as well as the as the major platforms. And they did represent a deplatforming of these voices. Now, over the last couple of years, I think that might have changed. And now these alternative tech platforms, including the one started by former president, Donald Trump are a bit more resilient. They are building a bit of a base and they are proving that the old solution of publicly shaming a social media platform or shouting at them from around the boardroom table may not be the only only way in which we can begin to push back on the effects that social media is having on our democracy. And what does that mean? Well, it probably means regulation.
0: So let me bring you right back in to the events of January 8th in Brazil this year and January 6th in the United States 2 years ago and again to this question of social media and you've given a really good lay of the land and the trajectory but how would you describe or how would you compare the role of social media in these two attacks on government buildings very different obviously certainly in the case of the US with a very powerful leader stoking the insurrection but how, just if you draw us into the social media question how would you compare
2: I think there are major parallels there are and I think what January the 6th and January the 8th show us is the power of these alternative tech platforms and we perhaps sometimes might think of social media primarily as a tool to message or to to share a message here and there or to communicate or whatever but actually the profusion of technology that supports alternative politics or extremism in the case of in the case of some politics goes much further than that and so just like we saw in the us as we saw in brazil these are live streamed now so there will be a a video record showing showing the actions and sharing them more broadly they will be funded traditional payment platforms might try to remove extremists there are now, alternative payment platforms that will be set up to support them. They will be coordinated through social media platforms. So, I think what what this is showing you is that there is now an avenue to pursue extremism and extremist politics through technology. And all of the tools that we might associate with that are necessary to creating a kind of political movement or even a political consequence, an action like the one we saw, like the storming of the Capitol building or the action in Brasilia. All of that sort of underlying infrastructure is now perfectly available to whoever might need it, and it's no longer the case that that we can that somebody important can make a phone call to somebody and remove somebody from a from this space entirely the proliferation of alternative technology has made these extremist political movements far more resilient
0: surusha let me come to you on this question uh, i guess asked in a slightly different way what role is disinformation
3: played in in politics in brazil it's an interesting question because disinformation has been an increasingly big part of how emerging democracies and democracies do business these days social media is in fact one key part of one tool that disinformation systems or strategies are using in democracies and elections, but it is just one tool. And we've seen that January 8th has been in planning for the sort of disinformation campaigns around that and strategies haven't started six months before or a year before coming from January 6th. They started two years before taking messaging and tools used in how to spread disinformation campaigns and misinformation campaigns and applying them in various ways to how to influence public opinion, how to bulge your base in different parts, how to use it all tech. And we've mentioned the Telegram, we've mentioned Twitter, and we've mentioned Facebook and Meta. But we haven't mentioned big platforms like WhatsApp, which in emerging democracies play a big role in how the people outside of cities spread information and share information between each other in the run up to elections and what we saw particularly in Brazil is that WhatsApp had these these sort of marketing firms or bot farms spreading mass information to the voter roll and voting public to influence a, an election a year ahead of what was going to happen so we were talking about Bolsonaro staying out of the conversation of I'm not directly influencing these misinformation disinformation campaigns he wasn't exactly standing in their way either, which is very influential.
0: Many people want to draw the comparison, so I'm going to bring you back to that again. And I guess there are some that that worry or wonder what extent, to what extent, Trump and his use and misuse of social media of disinformation influenced events in Brazil. You're suggesting that maybe not as much as perhaps people feel in the popular in a popular discussion, but. Do you think there has has Trump and the tactics that were used in the US? Have they had a direct influence? Or is this just pervasive? It's integrated into populism and the information tools that are available? Or is it when you get a very powerful country and a very influential leader, that it does actually have a have an effect where people begin to mimic these tactics?
3: What happened on January 6th was influential in what happened in Brazil. And they have said in the past that we've taken this populist, this populist leader playbook on how to use social media and the tools of disinformation and how to influence public opinion in the run up to elections. This has been publicly admitted. Steve Bannon has also said before on his Twitter campaign and on his Talk show that he's been consulting with Brazilian alt leaders on how to influence the campaign or how to spread marketing strategies or how to communicate effectively. But we have to remember that this is fitting into a long history of disinformation and and misinformation across democracies across the world. So we're looking at India, we're looking at African democracies, we're also looking at what's happening in Ukraine now with the war and disinformation there. These are tools of disinformation that are coming from all over the world and are being used in situations like the January 6th and amplified and finessed and used again then on the January 8th. Now the reception on January 8th was very different from what happened on January 6th, but it hasn't stopped there. and despite the fact that the Bolsonaro supporters didn't get the result that they wanted, they really wanted, it seemed, that the military to step in and enforce a coup d'etat on their behalf, really showing that they don't even understand the Constitution and how that would work. But they haven't stopped there. That hasn't dampened their spirits. They've taken that and said, we'll reshape the narrative because that's what Trump and his supporters have done in the US. We'll reshape that narrative to say, look, obviously the violence perpetrated wasn't us at all. That was leftist infiltrators. Or their there's campaigns now to perpetrate human rights abuses against the people who are arrested during, during the election violence. Now, none of that is, is in fact or and has been investigated and disproved. But that hasn't stopped that social media machine from churning forward and going forward with these disinformation campaigns.
0: So this brings us to the United States. One of my favorite topics here at Chatham House, and, and, and in general, President Biden enters 2023. He has a new Congress. We weren't sure that would happen. It has now happened with a new Speaker of the House elected. So let us turn
1: to you, Chris. Well, to let me turn the tables on you, Leslie, <laughs> and let me ask you, what is your read? What is What are the challenges facing President Biden in 2023, beyond the Congress?
0: Uh, it's a very interesting question. This is a very big year for multiple reasons. First of all, it's going to be the year when we're going to start to understand who the candidates are for the 2024 presidential elections. And that will be the backdrop to everything that happens in the United States. I think it seems to be more obvious which direction that's heading in the Democratic Party, although Biden now has the challenges of investigations and of these documents. It's much less obvious, I anticipate, in the Republican Party. So that I think will be a big, ongoing, very important series of events, but also a distraction for President Biden and what he intends to do, as will this new Congress. So the domestic agenda that he has been quite successful at pushing through, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure package, any number of things, is now going to come into question, be stalled, be challenged, be investigated. And so I think Biden will do what he's always wanted to do, what he has been doing, and what most presidents would do faced with this, what what most American presidents would do, which is to look to foreign policy. And here there are challenges for sure, but from a domestic perspective, there's a fair amount of bipartisanship on some of the big issues. China's the obvious one. So far on Ukraine, there are a lot of things to be diced out on those two. And then I think we're going to get a lot of contestation and politicization over immigration. And the Republicans are going to make the southern border and immigration a huge point of focus. So that will be a major challenge. And that's something that Americans care about a huge amount. And as we get closer to deciding on candidates, and on parties and politics and electoral politics come to the fore, immigration is going to be right up front and center. It resonates with people. But in terms of those foreign policy challenges, I think this is really the year of China. I think that's what Biden and the Democrats had thought would be the focus of their first year prior to the February invasion last year. And so now I think we're going to see real focus on technology competition, on really being the overlay for all policies towards China, whether it's an economic strategy, whether it's very much more about semiconductor chips, military engagement in the region, and modernizing that military positioning. And within that I think there's gonna be a really big focus on will Europe and the United States remain on the same page? Will they become more aligned or is this going to be become more difficult? because Europe's not necessarily on the same page when it comes to export controls and semiconductor chips and America's extraterritoriality. So some really difficult issues coming up, but I think they're ones that this administration has wanted to sink its teeth into for a very long time. It's packed full with foreign policy experts.
2: In the run-up to the 2024 election, do you have a sort of view on what kind of electioneering we're going to see? What kind of politics? Are we going to see a sort of continuation of what we've seen over the last of six to eight years? I guess the obvious question is, do you think Trump will be the candidate or not?
0: I think that Trump will be a candidate. I. The question is how we get to where I think we're going to land, mm. which is I think we're going to land with Trump not being the president, for sure. I think we're Probably also, and I, th- I might be in the minority here, but I don't think we will land with Trump being the candidate in the Republican Party. So I think there's the most interesting question, in to my mind, in U.S. domestic politics right now is where the Republican Party goes. And in terms of candidates, as soon as we get somebody else, and Ron DeSantis is the person that we assume will put their, that toss their hat into the ring, then I think the whole field opens up and it becomes very complex and very contested. And we've already seen that the Republican Party isn't able to bring itself together as making any number of compromises and as the influence of the far right of the Freedom Caucuses outweighs its numbers. So the nature of political discourse and of politics, I think, on that part of the U.S. will look similar. I think disinformation I think politics at play below what we might have thought was a level of decency and decorum and fact-based discourse I think that's going to continue but there's also a very another very different and very influential America and it's this isn't Republicans versus Democrats necessarily there're plenty of Republicans moderate, normal Americans, some of them don't feel like they have a party anymore, who are looking for a a more sophisticated, a more legitimate, a more serious politics. And that voice is very strong across the United States. It doesn't get as much attention beyond America's borders, because it's not as interesting. It's quite normal. Um, And so there is a sort of contest, I think, in the United States for what, (laughs) what the balance is going to be between those two.
1: And Leslie, the January 6th hearings have concluded, the hearings that we're investigating in the Congress, and in the House, that we're investigating the events and the insurrection. What's your sense, what impact have they had on the American political system generally now that they've wound down and they've had some very heavily televised, well-scripted hearings, and actually a very slick production across those. What's the lingering effect, the long-term effect?
0: It's a super interesting question, and it's also one we could do a comparison of across so many cases in Latin America, but here we are. I think that first point is that the impact of the January 6 hearings is gonna play out for decades in the United States. It might go quiet for a period right now while America turns inwards on itself domestically in a very partisan and polarized way. But it will undoubtedly have a very important impact, not least on history and the retelling of that. But what's interesting during the course of the year of those hearings is how much they changed. I think in the beginning, the narrative really was this is nothing but political. It's one side looking at the other side. And... My understanding, talking to a lot of people and obviously watching them and following the reactions, was that more and more Americans became more and more engaged with these hearings over time, that they were quite influential. And what's really interesting, especially in that final hearing, was the singular focus on Donald Trump. Of course, the hearings talked about intelligence failings on the day, they talked about security failings on the day, they talked about the role of extremism, all very important things, all of that documented, that will take on a life of its own, again, over many years. But that singular focus on this is a man who is not fit to rule, who has violated federal laws who has incited an insurrection, who has tried to stop the certification of a vote, the most basic norm in a democracy. And so I think that message has been very powerful. We're seeing any number of things change outside of the hearings during the course of that year where Trump's own popularity has begun to really It's been cracking and it's come down and the hearings sort of pile on top of that, right? They give you a narrative, they give you evidence, a very visual one that people saw. I think many people were very surprised by what they saw, actually, many Americans and, and so I think it's going to help chip away at, at Donald Trump's ability to really take that party forward
1: in the two years ahead. And you don't think, as some critics have charged, that they overplayed their hand on focusing too much on Donald Trump? Some people fear that they look too personalized, too directed against one person and not of over the overall context, including the social media. I
0: think that's where opinion started. And certainly there will be people that have that view. But again, I think that I tend to think you have to look at the January 6th hearings alongside what's happening in U.S. politics. And by the time they have that final hearing, we've had a midterm elections in which Donald Trump's key candidates in battleground states just didn't succeed. And so it all builds up to a robust set of factors that suggest that this is a man who, since 2016, has continued to build up losses for the Republican Party and also gone beyond the pale of what's considered to be legitimate as well as legal in a democracy.
1: Sarusha, how did the discussion of the January 6th hearings play out in social media, particularly among Trump supporters and the MAGA crowd?
3: I also had a similar question to, is it a good idea to refocus, as that narrative has progressed, refocus the blame on what the, tr- the role that Trump played and the blame that he has to pay for there? Because what we've seen is that reports on the report from the hearings has suggested that they've left out the re-examining of the growth of the narrative in far right movements and the role they played in those January 6th riots and this growing dissent in the far right movement, which could be very dangerous for American democracy moving forward. And what the American public really needed to hear coming out of these hearings was the impact and the role they played in also adding to the Trump narrative in building into what became January 6th. And in examining that, they would have also had to look at the role certain Republican leaders have played in emboldening that message on Twitter and on social media and being more actively involved than in fact Trump was himself in proliferating that message. And media generally have been very critical and now coming in the recent weeks have been more and more critical of is it right to just focus on these populist leaders as figureheads when if you take one populist leader out will that movement die completely or will the next sort of populist leader step up because that movement behind them is still... I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
0: I, I think this is a really interesting point, And it goes to that in the US, it goes to that broader debate about whether when Trump ceases to be the leader of his movement and of the party, will Trumpism just simply continue? And my own view is there is a fundamental difference between Donald Trump and everybody else that seeks to mimic or copy his policy views, his tactics, his way of governing And so it was clearly a very singular choice, not in the overall hearings and investigations and the report, which is extensive, but in the kind of televised hearings, and especially in that last one to singularly focus on Donald Trump. And part of it comes down to what is your theory of leadership? What is your understanding of the impact of particular leaders, and whether or not they're replaceable. My view is that in the US context, there's something very specific about Donald Trump, the man, the person that and to the extent that you can chip away at his legitimacy at his following, that is actually an extremely important thing to do.
1: Yeah, I work in a region that has had its fair share of populist leaders. In fact, it's defined sort of the populist demagogue Latin America. And in those cases, you think of the populist leaders historically, Juan Perón of Argentina, Getúlio Vargas of Brazil, and they've, their movements remain even after. But I think there was always this hope that people like Bolsonaro or Trump would just be a flash in the pan. Clearly they're not. So I'm curious, Alex, what's your sense of how social media is sustaining this? Or is it too diffuse?
2: I think one of the interesting things social media will do is lead to an almost internationalization of this kind of extremist politics. When Donald Trump was running for office in first time around, it was 2016? He drew enormous amounts of attention from extremist groups in the UK and in Germany and France and he was a figurehead in many respects for an international movement that is incredibly diffuse and really difficult to pin down and at times totally idiosyncratic in its messaging and in the way that it carries out its politics. And obviously, an international movement like that, it's very difficult when the internationalization of this kind of uh, this kind of politics doesn't make a lot of sense when you zoom in at a single country level. You lose this context of what's taking place in the fringes where and my guess is, and we we're already starting to see this with Victor Orban coming to speak at CPAC. and then there's some sort of praise in the Republican Party for money in Italy, that there are a new figurehead might emerge, and that person may not be in country but they will still be somebody who's worth admiring for for this sort of international it's very difficult to call it a group but certainly this sort of this the, the, yeah, I wouldn't know how, better, how best to describe it. Can it be sustained?
1: Can you continue to have Bolsonarismo or Trumpism without Trump or Bolsonaro? Or if they're so politically damaged, can social media continue to sustain that? Leslie? The,
0: again, I think you still have to if you're going to start to talk about impact, scale of movements, very different contexts. And I, I guess the key question that so many of us were asking... Everywhere, but in, in my in my land landscape, in the U.S., was how strong are the norms? How strong? How robust are the institutions? And what does it say about democracy? And we saw a lot of what we thought were institutions or were legal. A lot of what was holding up many practices were actually norms. They were expectations of appropriate behavior. They weren't the, the laws. soft guardrails. So you could, yeah, so you, you a can bro- a lot can be broken down. But the institutions, in fact, they held on January 6th. Congress returned. They certified the vote. There was a transition of power. So in the end, I think you've really got to get, there is a movement. Of course, there can be more Trumpism, but let's talk about what that means, how consequential it is, how far it can push the boundaries of democracy, of the fundamental norms. And I think it's a mistake to assume that anybody is replaceable that they're all the same and I'm not, I'm sure that's not what we're saying but I think there is something that was very singularly powerful and destructive about Donald Trump that we haven't seen before and I'm I suspect that we probably won't see again in quite that way I can't see the other person in US politics that has the intent or the ability to pursue politics in the way that he was and, for and the temperament. but was his
1: temperament. He just tapped. Susha.
3: Yeah, I have a follow-up question, if I may. Democracies these days don't exist as an island anymore. When we're saying these right-wing alt-populist movements aren't global, they want to seem global online. They want to use social media, as I say, as a tool to make them seem more influential globally than they are. And the question we need to ask is how is the general public anticipating or absorbing and understanding that message because at the end of the day when we go to polls yes they're influenced by populist leaders and the information they have but some of them don't understand the information that they are getting and what when we're talking about misinformation and disinformation that is the crux of the matter is that most of the general voting public are finding it increasingly difficult to tell what is truth and what is not. And I really do hate the term post-truth because there is truth, in fact, and there is not. But the literacy, the digital literacy of the general public across the globe is low and disturbingly low. And we need to really ask the right questions. And how do we make sure that when we go to polls, it is harder to sway a general, informed, intelligent public in favor of populist right-wing leaders? So we don't have a situation where we have another Trump-led or Bolsonaro-led or not-led depending on how you look at it. Insurrection. How do we get a a voting public that can make more informed choices? And increasingly, media have also said that the sophistication around disinformation and misinformation, and they are different, which is why I keep repeating them separately. Why the tools and the strategies around that are increasingly difficult to tell apart and monitor and disprove and keep up with them as they are growing. This is something we really need to tackle more head on. Otherwise, we're just going to see this more and more with every populist leader going forward. It won't be Trump now maybe not in the next election, but there will be another Trump. So, Richard, let's stop there
1: with a cliffhanger, because I think it's, that's the big question. And it will continue to our listeners and Bronwyn and Leslie both. I think this is an issue that we need to continue to explore. It's difficult to do it in a half hour or so of a podcast. But I think this is really, in many ways, the defining issue of international and domestic politics today and what that impact is. So I'm going to Not to give short shrift to your very good question, but let's continue this conversation. Leslie, back to you.
0: And that's the show. A big thank you to our guests, Chris, Alex, Sarusha, whose writing and research can be found both here at Chatham House, across many international publications, not least my colleague Chris Sabatini. All of us are on Twitter. Please follow us. And a reminder that you can find all of Chatham House's podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and all major podcast providers as well as through our social media channels. So do follow, subscribe, and please do leave us a great review as they help with our profile. That's all for now. Bromwin will be back soon, certainly next week from Davos. For now from London, I'm Leslie Vinjamori. Thanks so much for joining us.